All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Unstarving Artist. Really glad to be back with you all. Let's jump in. So real quick, for those who are just joining us for the first time, what is The Unstarving Artist podcast? What is the purpose here? Well, one, it's so important to be exposed to helpful ideas, to surround yourself with people and a community that will give you positive encouragement, and for you to figure out strategies and tactics where you can work hard towards your goals. So number one, that's what this podcast is all about, is helping to equip you with those things. And to go a bit deeper on the second point about positive encouragement and community, uh, community in general is extremely important. Uh, uh, Entrepreneurship, growing an art business, working on yourself, it can be a lonely affair if you let it, but it doesn't have to be. If you can surround yourself with like-minded people that are moving in the same direction, it's really going to make things much more enjoyable, much more doable, much more likely for you to stick with things and uh, go the distance towards your goals. At the end of the day, there's really two things that we look for to have success in life. Uh, We want to be doing meaningful work and we want to have meaningful relationships. If you have meaningful work and you have meaningful relationships in your life, then um, uh, you're going to feel successful. You're going to feel like you're making progress um, regardless of whether you've hit certain specific numerical goals that you have in mind for yourself, whether that's financial or otherwise. Okay, so that's what the Unstarving Artist Podcast is all about, is helping to create space and a community for us to do these things. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. Uh, Before I get too further along, though, if you're watching this on YouTube, we're live streaming these on YouTube for now. Go ahead and hit the like button and subscribe there. That will help uh, us with the algorithm. And the more that we get that feedback, uh, the more people will see our content and we'll be more inclined to do more of these episodes and help you out in this way. So if you're getting value from this, definitely do that. That way we can be incentivized to keep uh, creating this, this content for you. All right, so today I want to start off with a quote that I really like that I came across this week from a guy named Shane Parrish. He runs a site called Farnham Street. It's a really useful blog on uh, general uh, principles about how to think well, how to have more success in life or accomplish your goals, whatever those might be. So the quote that I want to start with is this, success comes down to doing the obvious thing for an extraordinary period of time without convincing yourself you're smarter than you think you are. I'll read it one more time. Success comes down to doing the obvious thing for an extraordinary period of time without convincing yourself you're smarter than you think you are. So let's unpack this together together for a moment. So what's Shane saying here? What Shane is saying here is that achieving our goals, making progress um, towards a certain outcome that we want in life, oftentimes, in most cases, it's not rocket science, actually. It's not complicated. What happens, though, is that we overcomplicate things ourselves or we get bored or distracted with what we know we need to do. Now, he calls it the obvious thing, the thing that we need to do. And so this is one point where I will differ with him. I do not think it's always obvious what you need to do, um, especially when you're starting out. 
But at some point, you're going to hit a moment in your life and your trajectory towards your goals where you will distill things down to their essence and get clear, get clarity on what are the essential things you need to do in order to get your outcome, in order to get the goal that you're looking for. And then at that point, the exercise shifts. It shifts away from groping around in the darkness, uh, struggling, throwing spaghetti at the wall, having no idea what to do, um, to now shifting to simply walking the path. Now, walking the path isn't necessarily um, orders of magnitude easier, um, but you have clarity now and you need to lean into that path and do the work to get the outcome. So at that point in time, once you have that clarity, uh, I might agree with Shane and say that it, it, it's obvious, you know, but, um, you know, a lot of times common sense is not so common. So point one is doing the obvious thing. So getting clear on what you need to do, I would say. Um, and a lot of times it's a lot less complicated than you think it needs to be. Um, it's very, very simple. And because it's so simple, we can get bored or distracted or we chase shiny objects and try to do other things. That's where the second point comes in for an extraordinary period of time. A lot of times people don't get to their goals because they just can't go the distance. They can't stick with it. They give up on themselves. Um, and it can be a vicious cycle because a lot of times they will give up or they'll get distracted and then they are their own worst critic and they beat themselves up psychologically for having gone off track, for having not gone, gone with things um, all the way. And so if you've ever struggled with that in the past, um, uh, where you get distracted and you come back and you find that you're spending so much time beating yourself up, getting mad at yourself, worrying about the fact that you've um, not been sticking with things, I would encourage you to work on that uh, part of your mindset. Give yourself grace. Um, I used to do this all the time in my own life where I would beat myself up when I uh, fell off the wagon, so to speak. And then I realized after it happened so many times that uh, the, the desire I had to beat myself up and complain and stress about it, um, it didn't serve any good. It was There was no benefit to it. All it would do was delay my, me getting back into a headspace where I can actually move forward and make progress. So it's, at some point I realized, hey, you know what? Eventually after this, these emotions and this negative thoughts and feelings, I'm going to be able to get back on the wagon, uh, get, get going again. Uh, why don't I just speed things up and get there faster? <laughs> and the only trick that I could find to get there faster was to just give myself grace, give myself forgiveness and not... Um, have such a, a negative inner monologue about um, uh, getting tripped up and not sticking with things. And so the beautiful thing about that is uh, once I freed up my mental space to not be uh, beating myself up, it created space to move forward uh, again and get back on the, in the saddle sooner. And um, then as a result, uh, what, was, what was once a catastrophe, what was once a uh, evidence that I can't stick with things became this tiny little speed bump because I actually was sticking with things because I kept going and kept going and kept going, even though every once in a while um, I got distracted. And then you get distracted less and less over time. So doing the obvious thing for an extraordinary period of time without convincing yourself you're smarter than you think you are. So let's talk about that last piece. Without convincing yourself you're smarter than you think you are. 
Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone uh, get a repeatable process, get on a repeatable path that's working, but then they find some shiny object, something that looks better or enticing, or um, they self-sabotage in some way and say, this is not going to keep working, or I've got to do something different, or uh, that looks attractive. And then they basically turn off or they stop engaging in what's working um, and try something else. And then that just confuses themselves because they get turned around about um, what's working. Maybe they start to doubt themselves again. They question um, things in a more deep way and they can't even go back to the thing that was working. Okay. So um, it's not to say that it never makes sense to change your path or um, evolve things. But um, the longer you're at things, the longer you're at um, uh, business, growing your art business, whatever it might be, uh, the more you develop humility around making big seismic changes to what you're doing. Um, when, when you're first starting out, you think a, a change like uh, adding a new source of leads or uh, duplicating your content from you know, Instagram and then also uh, posting it on Facebook. Um, on the surface, it's so easy to articulate that idea and say, oh, I can just do that, that you think it's going to be easy to do in practice as well. But then um, there's hidden complexity, there's hidden nuance, there's hidden uh, challenges and specificity to um, making a change like that. And so you just get a lot more humble about uh, 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 being overly optimistic about how easy a big project or a new initiative is going to be um, to add to what you're doing. So again, it doesn't mean that you never do that, but just don't be overly, uh, uh, don't, have, don't let your ego get in the way of your success, where if something's working, don't turn it off. Don't get rid of it. Don't uh, immediately swap it out for something else. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Okay? So that is such a powerful quote. I saw it this week, and I just thought I had to share it with everyone and really break down and unpack how I think it applies to um, being an artist and growing an art business. And really, um, if you want to learn more about Shane and his style of thinking on Farnham Street, one of the awesome... Um, uh, uh, mental models that they discuss is called first principles thinking. First principles thinking. If you've never heard this term, the idea is that um, when you're trying to reason about your situation, your circumstances, or a certain problem that you're having, um, uh, a lot of times we reason by analogy. Reasoning by analogy means that you look for something that's similar, like a pattern. Uh, maybe you see another artist that's just like you, or you feel like it's like you, maybe they make the same style of art, um, or they um, make art that you want to make too, and you see what they're doing, and you say, okay, well, if all those things are working for them, I'm just going to copy what they're doing, and uh, then I'll be successful too. Um, so reasoning by analogy isn't, it can sometimes work, but it's not as predictable, it's not as guaranteed, because um, what, it, what it can happen is you sort of cargo cult copy something without really knowing fundamentally why that's working for that person. Um, and a lot of times what we see on the surface, maybe uh, uh, it's only 20% of what that artist is doing that's leading to their results. Um, and if you're not, and if you're just reasoning by analogy, you're not actually thinking critically uh, uh, and you're not going to be able to identify the essential element uh, that's working and then ignore the things that aren't working. Um, and then you end up wasting time on perhaps superfluous things. Uh, another common thing is that uh, 
you know, what you see publicly um, from what someone's doing. Um, they may have been doing that six months ago, a year ago, um, but they're onto something else. Or maybe there's something else happening under the surface, like that's not happening online that you can't see, you don't have visibility into. It's leading to the results that they're getting. So reasoning by analogy is, um, again, it can work sometimes, but it's not the best way to reason and break things down. Instead, it's this alternative, which is called uh, first principles thinking. With first principles thinking, your aim is to uh, break down a problem or a situation into its smallest constituent elements. And once you've done that, you can then uh, really uh, uh, exactly identify what are those essentials, what's needed, and what's not needed. Um, you can tell something's essential by if you hypothesize, if you think to yourself, okay, let's say I remove this from my plan or my uh, approach to solving this problem. If I remove it, will the problem still be solved? If the answer is yes, then that, uh, that element of the plan or your approach to solving the problem is not essential. Um, you don't need it. But if, if, if you were to remove it and the thing would break down, then you know that you've identified a first principle, an element that is necessary to get the outcome that you're looking for. So I know that's been like very abstract. Let me actually give you an example um, from my own thinking and development as I work with artists about what I've identified as uh, the three things that you need to have a successful art business. So these are going to be the three first principles related to solving that problem. Okay. So the three things are one, a profitable art offer, two, a predictable source of leads, and three, a repeatable sales process. So let me show you why those three things are first principles and um, essential to solving that problem. First one, a profitable art offer. All that means is that you are you have one price point that you're charging for your work that's a profitable price point that you can make a living off of or you can you can um have a healthy profit margin for every sale. So why is that needed? Well, if we got rid of that, if we said we're not going to charge anything for our art or we're not going to charge a profitable rate for our art, then by definition you can't have uh, then by definition if if your definition of successful includes uh, making money at least as as part of that definition, then if you remove that then you can't achieve that outcome. Okay, so that would be an example of why that's a first principle element. Now, if we, uh, we uh, added complexity to that and said, you know, in order to have a successful art business, you need multiple price points. You need multiple um, art offers. You need, you know, you need to be selling uh, prints and originals and commissions and merchandise and NFTs. Um, if you were to remove that element and go down to just selling one thing at one price point, you'd still actually be able to have a successful art business. And so we know by that fact that um, we can also exclude the need of having multiple price points as being essential to having an art business. So I know this is a little abstract even still, but you can see how I'm thinking about things and breaking them down without using analogies. I'm just thinking logically about um, Given our goal of having a successful art business in this scenario, do we need how many uh, uh, price points do we need to have in order to do that, and and what type of price point do we need to have? Okay, then the next piece, a predictable source of leads. That's point number two. If you want to sell art, 
you have to sell art to other human beings, right? Human beings have to voluntarily decide to give you uh, their funds, their hard-earned money. And so you need a way to interact with them, that you need a way to get in touch with them. Um, if you had no way to get in touch with them, if you had no flow of new conversations, new relationships, then again, you'd have a piece that's missing. And then if, if you think about it, uh, on the flip side, adding more complexity, um, it just doesn't make logical sense that you would absolutely need to have, you know, multiple sources of leads. You don't need to have uh, TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and galleries and art fairs and art festivals, right? If you think about it, you don't need all of that. You just need one, one that's predictable. Okay, so that's our second example of first principles thinking. And then the third piece is a repeatable sales process. So all the sales processes, if you don't know what that is, it just means having a, a repeatable uh, systematic approach to turning somebody who's interested in you and your work into a collector. It doesn't mean that every single person will become a collector. Um, a lot of times in a good sales process, it might be one out of three, uh, one out of three, one out of five, something like that. But at least it's predictable. You know, if you go through the motions, you go through the flow, um, you're going to get a good outcome, a consistent outcome. Okay. So if we had no sales process at, at all, if every time somebody showed interest in you and your work, you just sort of winged it and you um, made up pricing on the spot, you talked about you, yourself and your artwork in wildly different ways, depending on uh, each scenario, then you wouldn't really have any sort of predictability in those conversations and you couldn't have a successful art business as a result. Um, on the flip side, if you tried to uh, have multiple uh, sales processes, you said, you know what, I'm going to uh, convert people by um, uh, having a, a virtual studio tours on Zoom. And I'm also going to have an e-commerce store where people can self-check out. And I'm also going to accept payments uh, via uh, Messenger by sending people payment links and so on and so forth. Uh, again, it's just another example that that complexity can some um, sometimes be helpful, but it's not essential to getting the outcome that we're looking for. It's not essential. Okay? So why am I getting into all this? Well, a lot of you all, I imagine, don't have a clear mental model right now about what it takes to have a successful art business. Um, you probably read different free resources online, uh, blog posts, videos, um, some that are targeted just for artists, others that are general you know, sales and marketing advice. Um, you, maybe you've watched the workshop that I put on that explains our approach and our method. Um, and for better or for worse, a lot of times with marketers and content creators, they try to convince you that their one way is the only way. Uh, it's this newfangled way. It's totally different than everything else. And um, you gotta you got to drop everything else that you're doing and only focus on that. Um, and so they want to kind of like, kind of suck you into their their mental model and their worldview. But uh, if you look under their mental model and their approach, if it's actually viable and and worth it, worth it, or um, what am I trying to say, worth its salt, so to speak, then you should be able to see the skeleton of what I just shared with you. Um, all the different ways, different methods, different hacks that people have out there, or techniques that they're trying to convince you to pursue can, if they're viable, can all be reduced down to having a profitable art offer, a predictable source of leads, 
and a repeatable sales process. What they're just doing is mixing and matching. They have a different permutation on those combinations of things. Okay. So hopefully with this, you can now start to have that mental model and one, have it uh, better uh, understand and interact with uh, resources you come across. And two, uh, give yourself permission to not be anxious about all the things that you're reading online and thinking that you're missing out on the new thing and you need to jump on that right away. Um, just almost treat this like your mantra, right? If you, if you said to yourself every morning, I need a profitable art offer, a predictable source of leads, and a repeatable sales process, just repeat that to yourself you know, in your head or out loud over and over and over again until it really seeps into your mind and into your bones. Um, you will now have like internalized that mental model, that obvious thing that Shane talks about in the, the initial quote here. And then all you need to do is just lean into that and focus on that. Um, one art offer, one source of leads, one sales process um, until you master those three elements. And only until you master those three elements, then at that time would I worry about um, experimenting or swapping out one part, one of those for something else or doing some tests and so on and so forth. Okay. So, um, yeah, I hope that idea is helpful go forth with that and really, uh, benefit from that in your day to day. The next thing I want to talk about is, uh, the idea of competitors versus collaborators. Um, I see this a lot with the artists that I work with and the art community in general is that a lot of folks, um, Actually, I'll go even broader than that. A lot of new new people that are new to business or new to entrepreneurship. Um, a lot of us are um, anxious about any sort of success or results that we're getting. And we're so nervous that those results um, or maybe that opportunity that we have, maybe we, we have a conversation with a prospective collector. We're nervous about that opportunity going away. We're clinging to it so tightly that we look at our peers as competitors rather than as collaborators. Um, but what I want to help you realize is that um, you don't have to look at people that way. Um, the way that we choose to look at people actually affects our reality. So if you think that everybody around you is a competitor or they're out to get you or um, um, they're an adversary of some sort, then you are going to actually see evidence of that. Your, your brain's going to be looking out for that evidence to confirm that belief that you have. And so you'll see that the world is this dangerous, harsh place uh, surrounded by people that are out to get you, okay? But on the flip side, if you look at people as collaborators, um, you're, going to, you're going to be start to notice all these different ways that people around you can help you, that you can benefit from them, and vice versa, okay? So another angle on this, if you've ever heard of the idea of a scarcity versus abundant mindset, um, that's really what we're talking about here. If you have an abundance mindset, then you're not worried about those opportunities that you have being stolen or taken away, so on and so forth. You know that there's plenty of opportunity out there, and so you don't have to worry and kind of hold everything so tight to your chest. So how do you develop this sort of abundant mindset? How can you look at your peers as collaborators rather than as competitors? Um, this number one step to doing that is recognizing that uh, where you are right now, the success you're having or not having really comes down to yourself and yourself alone. I know that's a hard idea. You might be thinking, wait a minute, like this happened to me, that happened to me. Um, 
I have been injured by people in life or problems have come to me or society has wronged me in some ways. And again, I think that, that those ideas might 100% be true. I'm not going to disagree or argue with, with you on that. But just because an idea is true and real doesn't mean that dwelling on that is helpful. Um, this is kind of a wild idea for uh, some people, but uh, a lot of times successful people will distort their reality. Uh, there's a guy named Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. They, he famously had what's called a reality distortion field. And so what that means is the example is that just because something is true or can be viewed as true or it can be uh, dwelled on by yourself, um, you don't have to choose to do that. Uh, what's more helpful is to adopt a frame or a mindset that even in spite of all those things that may have happened to you, problems, adversity, setbacks, challenges, uh, injuries that others, people have wronged you, uh, let go of all that, forget about all that, and actually take ownership of your situation. Okay? And if, it, if it's helpful to say, you know what, I know, I'm, I know that this isn't necessarily quote-unquote true, but Harry's telling me that it's helpful to have this mindset, you can still, uh, you can get, I'll give you permission to say that to yourself, have that inner dialogue. Um, and even when you do that, um, if you can really lean into this and really um, almost like pretend like you're an actor, that you're going to take ownership and, and uh, adopt that mindset, um, it's still, it's still going to be helpful, even if you're aware of this sort of meta element to this. Okay, so that's the number one thing is, if you can take ownership of your situation, as soon as you do that, what you're going to start to do is noticed all these ways that you could be better as a human being, as a friend, as a family member, as an artist, as um, a peer to other artists in your community, as a, uh, somebody who's serving their collectors and making their lives better and enriching them. And it sounds really harsh. Like when you first start doing this, you're going to notice so many things that you're not doing as well as you could. Maybe you put your foot in your mouth uh, in different ways. Maybe you, um, are too focused on yourself in some ways. Um, maybe you're not listening as well when you engage with prospective collectors. There's so many different ways this could happen. But once you start to focus on that inner work and cultivating awareness of where, of where you can improve, and then you start to actively make those improvements, make those adjustments, one day it's going to click for you. And all of a sudden, you're going to have more conversations coming in. Uh, you're going to feel you have that predictable source of leads. And it's this massive mindset shift because what happens is you realize um, there are so many people out there in the world that are glad to connect, that want you in their lives, that want their lives to be enriched by yourself and your artwork, that there are more of them that you can ever serve and help in a lifetime. And so once you've seen that by making those adjustments to yourself, your personality, your character traits, your skills... Um, it's so much easier to have that abundance mindset because you just know it as a fact. You, you know that uh, there's just not enough hours in the day for you to engage with people and help them and serve them, okay? So if you want to work on that abundance mindset, turn your focus inward, look for areas that you can improve, become basically the type of person that... Um, can make money as an artist. What sort of character traits does that person need to have? What sort of skills does that person need to have? As you accrue those, um, you're going to see uh, more and more abundance all around you. Okay? And so that leads me to my next quote. 
money-making behavior precedes predictable money-making. Think about that for a second. Money-making behavior precedes predictable money-making. In other words, if you want to be the artist that makes $3,000 a month, $5,000 a month, $10,000 a month in sales, you have to become that sort of character, that sort of persona, um, which means developing often, which often means developing new skills, uh, adjustments or tweaks to your personality, um, new beliefs, um, new ways of just engaging and interacting with the world that are oftentimes more healthy or at least um, more positive as it relates to your goal. So if you become that type of person, you develop those virtues, those character traits, that personality, then the actual result you're looking for, that outward abundance of having more income coming in, that always follows after. But there's always a bit of a lag because you have to become the person first that can then draw that sort of... Um, it's not draw like it's not like law of attraction where it just magically happens. But if you become that type of person, then all you do is just walk the path. You take the action that you need to take and that outcome follows. Okay? So let's keep going. Um, one other point I want to touch on today, which I think is just always useful to be a reminder to both to uh, the artists that I'm working with in our uh, programs and our um, artists that are just in our wider, wider audience community is how to ask a good question, how to ask a good question. So a lot of times I see artists that are struggling, they're having frustrations, there's something that's not working. And instead of actually articulating a question, what they do is they just say that things aren't working. Mm, like I can't log into my Instagram or um, uh, my reels aren't working, something like that. But if you look at that, that's just a statement. It's an opinion. It's not a question. So it sounds kind of silly, but my first point of feedback on asking a good question is number one, make sure to ask a good question. Make sure to ask a question, period. Ask a question, okay? So um, if you're feeling that frustration, you're feeling that emotion before you uh, um, uh, make a post or uh, send an email or um, ask somebody for advice, turn it into a question itself, okay? My next point of feedback is, uh, sometimes people's questions are in the format of, hey, can you review all this work that I've done and let me know if you have any feedback or suggestions? So that question is not a good one because um, uh, it's not really asking a specific question. The question, what, what the person there is really asking is, hey, um, will you basically do this for me? They're, they're kind of transferring, they're throwing their work over the fence, so to speak, to the other person and wanting them to just basically be responsible for getting it across the finish line. And that's not really a fair ask um, because the other person that you're engaging with, typically it's me, right, as your coach, um, I'm never going to have as much context as you have on your specific situation. And what's more, um, if you're in one of our programs, I've put together very comprehensive videos on what I think you should do in 99% of scenarios. And so most cases, if I were to actually engage in that way, well, I would go to my own training, I would review it, and I would go through the exercises that I've prepared and laid out. And so uh, that sort of question is another uh, sort of symptom of somebody uh, not, um, not just engaging with the training and actually just going through and doing the work. 
Okay, so instead of asking for just general feedback or suggestions from somebody, whether it's me or a peer or a mentor or somebody else in your life, make the question specific. You got to make it specific. Because when you make a specific question, it shows the other person that you respect their time and attention. And it shows that you are really actually critically engaging with the topic rather than um, sort of leaning back and hoping the other person kind of carries the ball all the way forward. And then uh, let's see what else. Yes. And then the last piece is that if your uh, question is related to some sort of creative exercise that is subjective, uh, that doesn't necessarily have a one definitive answer. For example, maybe you're looking to uh, prepare a, a bio for your Instagram profile, something like that. Uh, don't just come with the question like, hey, uh, uh, would this work well as a second line of my bio? Or um, actually, that's not a good example in this case. If you ask like, what should my Instagram bio be? Or what should I include in it? That's not as good of a question as if you come prepared with two to three bios and you want to know which one is best or which one do we think is best. Or um, then you ask specific questions about the bio, you have an example. So the, the takeaway there is that if you can actually come with proposed solutions, that's the best because it shows that you've actually engaged as much as possible. You've, you've carried the ball as far as you can. Then you ask a specific question about your proposed solution. And then you're going to get the best help, the best advice from a mentor or a coach or whoever it is that you're working with. Okay? So really try to put this in practice. And what's so valuable about it as well is that a lot of times when you actually clearly articulate your question, you uh, come up with a solution. You think about a specific question to the solution. When you've done all that, you realize you no longer need to ask a question. You just need to do the work. And um, I don't think it's ever out of malice that people do this. I think it's just human nature. As humans, we want to get our results with as little energy expended or calories expended as possible. And so by default, we're just not trained to uh, really flex our, mu our brain as a muscle. Um, we, we sometimes can resist doing that. I, I'm uh, guilty of this as well. I used to do it more in the past. Um, and so if you find yourself doing that and your brain's kind of being lazy, don't beat yourself up. It's nothing personal. I'm not mad at you. No one else is mad at you. But if you want to actually get more help from people and you want to get better help, uh, carry the ball further. Uh, critically engage with your question. Uh, try to solve it yourself. And if you do that, you know, half the, maybe a third the time to start, then half the time, then three quarters of the time, you're going to feel more and more confident that you've got the answer yourself and you can keep moving. And that's so valuable because you want that feedback loop between a problem that you're having and a solution, a good solution, uh, to be as tight as possible. So you can just keep going and um, uh, take action, get feedback from the real world and see what's working and what's not for you, right? Our goal is not to give you fish, it's to teach you how to fish. And so you have to actually like at some point, pick up the fishing rod, learn how to tie you know, the bait to the end of the rod, and go out to a pond and throw the fishing line in there, okay? And so that's what we want you to do. And asking a good question, learning how to do that, that's a skill in and of itself, and it's so valuable to practice and get good at. Okay, so to wrap things up today, I have one other thing. I just want to recommend a book to you all. It's called On Writing Well by a guy named William Zinser. And the reason I want to recommend it to you, 
um, is he has one good idea in particular that came to mind to me this week that I think is really helpful for artists to be reminded of. So one of his ideas out of many that are good is to aim for clarity and strength before you aim for style. And this means, in his case, he's talking about writing. And as you work on the business side of uh, your art practice, uh, writing, communication uh, should be a huge role of that, okay? It's a huge part of it. And again and again, I see folks, it's not specific to artists, newbies to entrepreneurship. And we have this temptation of wanting to be cutesy or clever or uh, really novel with our communication and our writing. And when we do that, we get sort of personally invested and we think it's really cool, some sort of phrase or concept or um, um, word choice that we picked out. And we sort of become attached to, attached to it, almost like it's a child of ours. And it's, uh, it's our, our pet and we don't want to let go of it. But the reality is, if you're making communication uh, you're creating communication for uh, a wider world beyond just your immediate friends and family that people that already know, like, and trust you. If you're trying to attract strangers, it is so much more important to prioritize clarity and strength of your ideas, of your communication, than quote-unquote style. When you try to make things stylish or stylistic, that's uh, William Zinser's way of saying cutesy or clever. Uh, it ends up being opaque. And if a person's looking at your writing and they think, you know what, this is too much energy to figure out what this means. And this happens in the matter of seconds, like split seconds. If someone goes to your Instagram profile and they can't figure out what it means and what you're about, they're just going to bounce, right? They don't care. They're a stranger. They don't, they don't care about you. Um, and it's just human nature. Um, what we all care about is what's in it for us or what's in it for me. So if you focus on clarity and being direct and having potent ideas, potent um, concepts in your messaging uh, or strong concepts in your messaging, then um, you're going to have such an easier time of growing your audience, connecting with people, and then ultimately having success and results um, with your, the business side of your art practice. So there's another saying in writing that I think is a really good one. It's called kill your darlings. It's been attributed to different authors in the past, William Faulkner, uh, Oscar Wilde, so on and so forth. But the idea is that, yeah, as you do any sort of creative practice, we can get overly emotionally attached to little flourishes, uh, garnishes, clever ideas, clever phrases that we think make a ton of sense, but they only make sense because we came up with them, right? We're the, we're the parent, we birthed them, and so we uh, are overly attached to them. So try to notice that, look out for that, in your communication, in your writing style, in ideas that you come up with, are there any that are you're overly attached to, that your ego is into, that that that, that you like, um, but aren't really serving you, or they're not clear enough, uh, or they're not precise enough? And if you want to, I'd imagine that this also would apply as well to your art practice, your art practice itself. So, uh, um, I'm not an artist by background, so I won't go too much into detail on that thought. But if you have any um, reaction to that, um, if you think that's true, if that resonates with you, that this idea of killing your darlings applies not only to writing, but also to your artistic output, let me know in the comments uh, uh, below on how that does. And so we can uh, 
uh, have a dialogue on that. I'd love to hear from you there. Okay, so that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're watching this on YouTube, we're live streaming this when we do these episodes. Like and subscribe on YouTube. The more people that do that, the more the algorithm thinks this content's valuable. We'll get it in front of more people. We'll be able to grow it and we'll be more motivated to make more uh, episodes like this for you. Um, We're also syndicating this across different podcast apps. So if you prefer listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, go ahead and follow us there as well. And we'll be able to um, make sure you don't miss any of these episodes. Next, if you want help with growing your art practice, you can book a 15-minute quick discovery call with me to see if there'd be a fit for us to work together. So just click on the link in the, in the description to book that call. It'll be below this on Substack. It'll be below this on YouTube. Um, it'll be below this on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening in, okay? Now, coaching with me is an investment. Absolutely. It's a four-figure investment. Okay, so keep that in mind. If something like that isn't feasible for you at the moment, no worries at all, but please don't book a call. Okay, save those calls for people that are in a position to um, uh, engage and get helped in that capacity. But instead, I have good news. Okay, don't worry. We still want to serve you. We want to help you and have you uh, get more value out of uh, this relationship. So instead, we have something called the Catalyst. It's a new private community I've created that has some of my best training inside and much more. You can network with other artists that are in there as well. And so for at least the moment, you can join the Catalyst for just $47, okay? So it's very affordable, very accessible, and there's a ton in there, and we're going to be adding more to that as more people join, okay? So just click on the link in the description to join that if you're interested, and I would love to see you on the inside there, okay? So thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you soon with another episode. Peace.